Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and welcome to Chris Degeni Iran Talk Show. It is Friday, March 16th, 2012. This is the um, this is the third of our presentations of the Epistles of Peter, and God willing. Yahweh willing it's our last. And next week, well, well, next week there's two Peter. Welcome to Talk Show and thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Last week we saw that in um in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the apostle admonishes his readers. You must be obedient to every authority created by mankind on account of the Prince or the Lord whether to kings as if being superior, as if being superior, not that they really are, or to governors as if being sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, but for the praise of those doing good. A wicked people deserves and usually gets a wicked government. As free men, Yet not as if having freedom for a cover for evil, but as servants of Yahweh. These words are very much like those of Paul of Tarsus in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 13. Yahweh raised up the Pharaoh of Egypt during the Exodus, during the time of the Exodus, who oppressed the children of Israel, even to the point of forcing them to expose and destroy their own children. Yahweh raised up that Pharaoh knowing that that Pharaoh was evil so that Yahweh could destroy him and demonstrate his glory and his majesty to the children of Israel. We must always keep that in mind and hope for that same deliverance. Yahweh had Moses announced to the Pharaoh, which is recorded in Exodus chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, the following words, For now I will stretch out my hand, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence, and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed, for this cause I have raised thee up. For to show in thee my power, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Yahweh appointed Nebuchadnezzar, the tyrant. The world saw Nebuchadnezzar as a harsh tyrant. Yahweh appointed him to rule wheresoever the children of Adam dwell, as it says in Daniel chapter 2. And he did. Yahweh established the Persian, Greek, and Roman empires, which followed, knowing that they would tyrannize men, knowing that they most often would rule unrighteously, and they did. We know that Yahweh established these empires, their rise and their fall, 
are clearly prophesied in Daniel chapters 2, 4, and 7 in rather amazing ways. It was within Yahweh's permissive will that the dragon, which represents his own enemies here on earth, that the dragon was able to give its power to these beasts. And he foresaw what would result. Again, it was also that his people would see his majesty and learn to put their trust in him. They rejected him as their king over 3,000 years ago. And therefore, this has been a necessary lesson. It's still a necessary lesson. Our people still haven't learned. This is all part of the seven times of punishment foretold. In Leviticus chapter 26, verse 18, where it says, And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Because these times were decreed by our God for our punishment, we must suffer through them as he also does. Many people in Christian identity don't understand that. And that's pitiful. They deny the meaning of Romans 13 and of Peter's words here in Peter in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 and twist them into something that they don't say. And that's pitiful. We must realize that until our people repent, the good are going to be punished along with the wicked, along with the disobedient. Also in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, the apostle calls his intended readers an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, a direct reference to Leviticus 19, 5 and 6. Then Peter makes references to Hosea, explicit references to Hosea chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, clearly indicating that the people of the ancient dispersions of Israel are the only intended audience for his epistle. These are the lost sheep of Israel, whom Peter by this time knew well, that the gospel should be taken to them so that they may be reconciled with Yahweh their God. As he actually points out, at the end of chapter 2, concerning Christ, that he himself carried your errors or sins on his body upon the cross. That the sins being taken away, we should live in righteousness by whose wounds you are healed, for you were as sheep wandering astray, but now you must return. They were Israel. Now you must return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. They were Israel, and Peter's language proves that none of them were Jews. They couldn't have been Jews. They could not have been the people of Judea, of the returnees from Babylon, because the reference in Hosea, Peter's reference to Hosea, precludes that. Peter didn't quote Hosea because it sounded cool, because it sounded nice and he could use those words. Peter quoted Hosea 
because the long ago cast off Israelites that he was addressing were the fulfillment of that scripture in Hosea when they returned to Christ, to Yahweh through Christ. Now I will proceed with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, and, and this is after the admonishment to his audience to return, that they must return to Christ. Peter says, likewise, the wives, being subject to their own husbands, in order that if some then disobey the word, through the conduct of the wives, they shall have advantage without the word observing in fear your pure conduct. Paul also explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 14, the unbelieving husband has been sanctified in the wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified in the brother. Otherwise, then, your children are unclean while now they are holy. The children would be holy separated from the evil practices which are in the world by the good conduct and the good instruction of the Christian mother, which would affect them since it would be the controlling influence in their lives. Verse 3, still addressing the women, of which the dress must not be outward with braids of hair and applications of gold or putting on of garments. But the hidden man of the heart with the incorruptibility of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious before Yahweh. A lot of modern women despise Paul of Tarsus for his attitude towards women. However, Paul's attitudes were very classical and very Christian. Here, Peter fully vindicates Paul, corroborating the instructions Paul left in his epistles concerning women. To this, we may compare 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, and 1 Timothy chapter 2. A lot of modern women and men have minds ingrained so deeply with Jewish communist propaganda that they no longer even view feminism for what it really is. And they think that feminist views are normal. Jewish ideals have permeated and poisoned Western society since the French Revolution, and often we do not even detect them. Feminism is the Judaization of women. There is no room in Christianity for feminism. Women have an important place in Christian society and an invaluable place in Christian households. And feminism has now practically destroyed that and, as a result, destroyed Christian families. Ephesians 5, 21 through 27. Subject yourselves to one another in fear of Christ. Wives, to their own husbands, as if to the prince, as if to Christ. Because the husband is the head of the wife, 
as also Christ is the head of the assembly. He is the deliverer of the body. But as the assembly is subject to Christ, in that manner, the assembly being the wife of Yahweh, the wife of God, the wife of Christ, in that manner also wives and everything to their husbands. Husbands love the wives just as Christ has also loved the assembly and had surrendered himself for it in order that he would consecrate it, cleansing it in the bath of the water in the word, that he may present it to himself in honor, the assembly not having a blemish or a wrinkle or any of such things, but that it would be holy and blameless. Colossians 3.18, wives, subject yourselves to your husbands as is proper with the prince, with Christ. Husbands, love the wives and have no bitter feelings towards them. 1 Timothy 2.9 and 10. Likewise, women in moderate attire are to adorn themselves with modesty and discretion, not in braids and in golds or gold or pearls or in very expensive garments but that which is sitting with women professing fear of God through good works. Our profession, as Paul says, is through good works. The admonishments to women concerning their clothing were not without reason. We usually think of the ancients as a whole as prudish dressers, but that was certainly not the case in ancient Greece. Aristophanes, who was at the peak of his career around 400 BC, wrote about short skirts, facial makeup, and see-through dresses in ancient Greece. The Spartans were famous for see-through dresses. Nothing new under the sun. While first century dress in the Roman Empire was usually a bit more modest, it was not always, and women could go to lengths to make the simple toga or stola, which they wore to be sexier or more attractive. Exotic fabrics, such as silk, were expensive. The Greeks called it mead, the, the cloth of the meads. But they were frequently seen. Women of the period also very often wore ornate gold and silver jewelry, and it was common for women to go to great lengths, arranging their hair in elaborate braids. These are the things which Peter and Paul also advised Christian women against, seeking them to be modest women, since these things were considered to be immodest and vain by Christians. Christian women should indeed still have those attitudes today. Verse 5. For thusly, for thusly, at one time also, the holy women who have hope in Yahweh had dressed themselves, being subject to their own husbands, as Sarah had obeyed Abraham, calling him master, whose children you have been born to do good and not fearing any terror. As a side note, some people have complained about my use of the word thusly, especially people from Europe. They imagine that English can't add new words to the lexicon, and, and I think that's pitiful. I think that thusly sounds much better as an adjective than, than the simple thus, which the proponents of the Queen's English prefer. 
I just thought I'd mention that. Abraham and Sarah, whose children you have been born to do good. That's how the Christogenian New Testament translates part of verse 6. One cannot spiritualize seed. The Greek word sperma. In people, it only comes from one's reproductive organs. Yet, because the organized religions are universalist, they insist that the seed of Abraham is not literal. Their agenda leads them to other errors as well. And here we have an obviously blatant one. The King James Version has here the, the phrase, as long as, where it says, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well. Those words in the King James are not in italics, as the King James usually marks added words in italics, but there is no conditional word or phrase in the Greek anywhere in the passage in any Greek manuscript. The New American Standard translation is far worse, and it translates this portion of Scripture. And you have become her children if you do what is right. The King James translation, it's dishonest. The New American Standard translation, it's criminal. The King James reads the Greek verb ginomahi as if it were the simple aini, which, is, which means to be, but when in fact the verb ginomahi means to become, to come into being, and the people, that means to be born. The King James and the New American Standard both also attempt to cover for their errors here by translating the participle verb, which can be translated as to do or doing, as if it were a second-person active verb instead. That's why it's criminal. They're purposely mistranslating words in this passage to mold it into their universalist agenda. Both translations supply a conditional clause as long as in the King James or if in the NAS that is not anywhere in the Greek text, in any Greek text. You have to be born one of Abraham's children, just as Eleazar was rejected from being made the heir in favor of a child from Abraham's own loins. There's a reason why we had that story. And it is so certain, and, and it is certainly assured that Eleazar was a member of Abraham's wider ethnic community. He was from the town of the children of Abraham's fathers. He was from Haran. He was called Eleazar the Syrian, Eleazar of Damascus, just as Laban, the, the, the first cousin of Jacob's wife, Rebekah, was called Laban the Syrian. There is no word in the Bible about somehow becoming one of Abraham's children, except for certain mistranslations here. 
and in 1 John 11, or 1 John 12, or, or John 1, 12, I'm sorry, John 1, 11 and 12. Well, there's another verb, geneo, which is related to ginomahi. And geneo, rather than ginomahi itself, is the usual New Testament word used to describe the act of being born. That alone does not change the basic meaning of the word ginomahi. And Liddell and Scott define ginomahi in its radical sense, and the radical sense of a word is its most basically literal sense. They define it as to come into being of persons to be born, of things to be produced, of events to take place, come to pass, come on, or happen. Peter's intended readers were born of the seed of Abraham, as his text in many places proves that he's addressing Israelites of the dispersion. And they were born for the purpose of doing good and not to fear. It is the fault of the Catholic religion that it is based on a premise that if one does good, then he might become something other than what he was born. The Catholic religion is contrary to the creation of God, and it keeps people in fear, which here Peter tells us we should not have. If you're born one of Abraham's children, you should not have fear. You were born to do good. And you will. If not in this life, you will do good eventually. That's why Christ went and spoke, went and preached the gospel to the spirits in prison, which we will discuss shortly. It's a damn shame that the Catholic religion has been brought into Christian identity by certain so-called pastors. Verse 7, the men likewise, living together in accordance with the knowledge that with the feminine is the weaker vessel, imparting honor, as they are also fellow heirs of the favor of life, for your prayers not to be hindered. Husbands should love their wives. They are honored partners, fellow heirs of the favor of life, and not human chattel. They're not property. However, the wife can only rightfully anticipate that honor if if she in turn submits herself to her husband. As Paul said in Ephesians, Husbands, love the wives just as Christ has also loved the assembly. Keep in mind that the men of the assembly, if they expect their wives to honor them, they must in turn submit themselves to Christ. Paul said in Colossians, wives, subject yourselves to the husbands as it is proper with the prince. Husband, love the wives and have no bitter feelings towards them. Peter corroborates all of that here. Live righteously for your prayers not to be hindered. Sinners, it it amazes me that sinners believe that God would hear them. That fags, that all sorts of sexual deviants and perverts could think that they could pray to God and be blessed. If they're blessed, 
it's for their trial. If, if, if they gain anything in this life, it's so that God could take it away from them, so that he could destroy them in their sin, ultimately. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 and 17. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yeah, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. That's an idiom for bloodshed. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And then maybe he will hear our prayers. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 1. And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of Yahweh and sat before me. Then came the word of Yahweh unto me, saying, this is Ezekiel's words, Son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Are you come to inquire of me? As I live, saith Yahweh God, I will not be inquired of by you. Sinful people have no recourse in prayer to God. And as Yahweh said in Isaiah 117, we must seek judgment against sinners. It is not good enough that we ourselves keep free from lawlessness. We must also pray that God judges sinners. And we must not accept those sinners into our company. Paul says of sinners in Romans 132, that not only they who cause them, but also they approving those committing them, committing those sins, are worthy of the judgment of God. If we accept the wicked practices of those people around us, how can we expect the blessings of our God? We can't. Verse 8. But at last, all be like-minded, sympathetic, lovers of the brethren, compassionate, humble-minded, not returning evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, blessing, because for this you have been called in order that you shall inherit a blessing. Romans chapter 12, verses 16 through 18, carries the same message where Paul wrote to the Romans to be of the same mind towards one another. We can only be of the same mind. We can only be of one mind if we all agree with Scripture, with all of Scripture. Not thinking of lofty things, but accommodating oneself to those who are humble. Do not be wise on account of yourselves. To no one returning evil in place of evil, having noble intentions in the presence of all men, if possible, from yourselves being at peace with all men. Both Peter and Paul carried on the instruction which Christ transmitted in the famous Sermon on the Mount. Verse 10, For he desiring to love life and to see good days must keep his tongue from evil and lips for which not to speak guile. But he must turn away from evil and do good he must seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of Yahweh are upon the righteous, 
and his ears to their entreaty. But the face of Yahweh is upon or against those doing evil. Psalm 34, verse 11. Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of Yahweh. What man is he that desires life and loves many days, that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of Yahweh are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. He'll hear your prayers. The face of Yahweh is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and Yahweh hears, and delivers them out of all of their troubles. Proverbs chapter 3. My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck. Write them upon the table of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Romans 14:19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith we may edify one another. Yet the things which make for real peace are the commandments of God. The peacemakers are not the world's compromisers. The peacemakers are those who seek to uphold the word of God. As the proverb says, he that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for men. If you ignore the sin of your brother, if you ignore the perversion in your community, then you procure griefs for men. But he that reproves boldly, he that seeks to uphold the word of God and remind men of it, he is a peacemaker. Verse 13. And who is he who shall be doing you evil if you are emulators of good? This thought is also in agreement with Paul's words in Romans chapter 13 and with the statements concerning the governments of men. Even evil rulers fear righteous people and good works. This is evident, for instance, in Mark chapter 6, verse 20, where it says, For Herod, and we know Herod was a wicked, evil Edomite, he was as evil as they come. For Herod, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy, and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things, and he heard him gladly. Even the wicked Herod did not want to kill John until he backed himself into a corner, and his own wickedness overcame him for the sake of his pride, when he only relented to kill John because of an oath that he made to his even more wicked Edomite stepdaughter at the beckoning of her still more wicked mother. So we see that even the wicked Herod feared the righteous John. Verse 14. But if then you should suffer on account of righteousness, you are blessed. So you should not fear their fear, nor be troubled. As Christians, we should never fear what unrighteous men or what a tyrannical government may do to us. 
This is the message of the gospel, where Christ says it, Matthew 10, 28, and fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him, meaning God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And only he can do that. This is why Paul warns us to put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. At Ephesians 6.11, those who fear what men may do to them have no true Christian faith. I'm going to supply a side note here. One of my detractors recently, and, and I hate to get personal here, but, um, but, but it makes for a good example. One of my detractors recently wrote the following about me on his website, and I'm going to quote him. When I was at Bill Fink's home in the fall of 2010, I asked him, do you think it's wise to publish your home address on your website? He was not concerned. I thought he was recklessly endangering his mother and grandmother with whom he lives. Quite the contrary, and, and that's the end of the quote. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, that's the end of the quote. Quite the contrary, I believe, me personally, that whatever happens to myself or to my family is not within my own control. It is only within the control of Yahweh my God. What did Christ say to Pilate? You only have power over me because it's given to you from above. I live my faith every day. The man that wrote that on his website, he's not a Christian. He's a fraud. And his own attitudes prove that, prove that to anyone with eyes to see. If we as Christians seek to please God, we must have no fear of men. That's just the bottom line. That's just the way it is. Verse 15, now sanctify the Prince Christ in your hearts, always ready with an answer to ask to each asking you for an account concerning the hope which is among you, but with meekness and fear, having a good conscience in order that while you are slandered, those who despise your good conduct in Christ would be ashamed. Compare Colossians, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where Paul says, In reference to those outside, you walk in wisdom, buying the time, your speech always with goodwill, seasoned with salt. It is necessary for you to know in what manner to answer every single one. Peter says in chapter 4 of this letter, for enough of the time has passed, perpetuating the will of the heathens, having walked in licentiousness, passion, drunkenness, revelries, and lawless idolatries. While they are astonished, they blaspheme that you're not running together in the same excess profligacy. The ancient Roman historian Tacitus claimed the Christians were notoriously depraved and had antisocial tendencies and were persecuted for being 
incendiary. That's in the Annals of Imperial Rome, chapters 14 and 15. The later Christian bishop, Tertullian, tells us that the Jews fashioned all sorts of false allegations against Christians, exactly what Peter is talking about here, where he says, in order that while you are slandered, those who despise your good conduct in Christ would be ashamed. Tertullian tells us that the Jews fashioned all sorts of false allegations against Christians. So far even as to, to accuse them of ritual infanticide. And that's in his apology in chapter 8. The Christian apologist Minucius Felix said that Christians were accused of worshiping monsters, devouring infants, and holding incestuous feasts. And referring to those enemies of Christ, he said that the demons were forever setting fables afloat without either investigation or proof. That's in Octavius chapter 28. So Peter's talk of the slander and blasphemy aimed at Christians was indeed very real and happening at the very time in which he wrote. Yet while Christians were being slandered, it was the pagans who were depraved. Both Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 1 and that same historian, Tacitus himself in his Germania, I think it's in chapter 10, had written at this time of the sexual immorality which had become popular in Rome. Today we see this very same situation where sexual immorality and perversity have become normal in society, and they are trumpeted everywhere, and those who reject such things are blasphemed. One Peter three seventeen. For it is better doing good if one should desire the will of Yahweh to suffer than doing evil. Because Christ also suffered once for all errors, the just on behalf of the unjust, in order that he may lead you to Yahweh, indeed dying in the flesh, but being made to live by the Spirit. Likewise, Paul, from Romans chapter 5, from verse 6, said, Indeed, when we were feeble, Christ at the, Christ at the appointed time died for the impious. Though scarcely for the benefit of the upright will one die, for the benefit of the noble, perhaps, one then dares to die. But Yahweh introduces his own love to us because we, yet being wrongdoers, yet being sinners, Christ had died for our benefit. Still more then, being deemed worthy now by his blood, will we be preserved by him from wrath. Matthew 5, 9 through 13. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who seek to uphold the will of God. Blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called the sons of Yahweh. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, 
because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they should reproach you and persecute you, and being liars, they would speak any evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and exult, because great is your reward in the heavens. Like when people label you an exterminationist, right? For thusly had they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jeremiah was an exterminationist too. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It avails for nothing more than it is cast outside to be trampled by men. A peacemaker would be persecuted on account of righteousness. Why? Because, as the proverb says, he that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for men. But he that reproves boldly is a peacemaker, a real peacemaker. Therefore, a peacemaker is one who seeks to uphold the laws of Yahweh. And this saying of Christ in the parable, in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, it, it proves that point. Luke 6.22. Blessed are you when men hate you, and when they separate from you, and they reproach and they cast out your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in accordance with these same things did their fathers do to the prophets. Called them exterminationists. Verse 19, at which also going he proclaimed to those spirits in prison who at one time had been disobedient, when the forbearance of Yahweh awaited in the days of Noah's preparing the vessel in which a few, that is, eight souls, had been preserved through the water. In reference to the spirits in prison, Paul states in Ephesians 4.8-4.10, part of which quotes Psalm 68, and I quote from Psalm 68, I'm sorry, from Ephesians 4.8, on which account it says, Having ascended to the summit, he has taken captivity captive. In other words, the captivity of the children of Israel who were taken captive by the Assyrians who had sold themselves into the sin of the world is now taken captive by Christ himself. He has taken captivity captive. He has given gifts to men. Now he that ascended, what is it if not that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also he who ascended above all of the heavens in order that he would fulfill all things. Peter says that Christ proclaimed to those spirits in prison who at one time had been disobedient when the forbearance of Yahweh awaited in the days of Noah of Noah's preparing the vessel. Separation and alienation from Yahweh our God are comparable to a prison for our spirits. And therefore, I believe that the ancient beliefs in an underworld, a hell, as an abode for the dead, is an allegory for that separation. It's an allegory representing our separation from God. That is why Paul said at Ephesians 
2.18, that because of him, meaning Christ, we both, and Paul's referring to remnant Israel and cast off Israel, have access in one spirit, have access in one spirit to the Father. Now the remnant had access through the temple rituals right up to the crucifixion of Christ, cast off Israel, had access only after the passion of Christ. Because of him, Christ, we both, have access in one spirit to the Father. Until the passion of Christ, we had no access to the Father. We were alienated from Yahweh. Practically, every branch of our race believed in an underworld abode of the dead, where the spirits of the dead awaited judgment. For instance, In the ancient Sumerian texts, which have been found carved in stone, there is the story of Inanna's descent, Inanna being a female, Inanna's descent to the netherworld, which told the tale of the Anunnaki, who were the seven unnamed great gods of the Sumerian pantheon, who sat as judges of the dead in the Sumerian religion. Inanna was the Sumerian queen of heaven. Her sister, Eresh Kilgal, ruled over the netherworld. The Assyrians later had a similar story called Ishtar's descent to the netherworld. In the Greek texts, Tartarus was the world for the underworld abode of the spirits of the dead, and it was ruled over by the god called Hades. The name Hades later became synonymous with the place, and the place was eventually called simply Hades. In Book 11 of the Odyssey, Homer portrays the hero Odysseus as having descended to Hades in order to consult the blind and dead Theban prophet Tiresias. The Thebans were Phoenicians, of course. In the tragic poet Aeschylus's play, Alcestis, the famous Heracles descends into Hades and brings the heroine, Alcestis, back up from the dead, restoring her to her husband, whom she had given her her life for earlier. In the Germanic Edda, or Eda, Niflheim is the name of the underworld abode of the dead. And it is ruled over by a goddess named Hela, who, like Hades for the Greeks, gave us our English word for hell. The ancient Egyptian mortuary texts saw the underworld as the abode for the punishment of the rebellious. So we see that practically every branch of our race every branch of the white Adamic race, and all these people who were white, believed in this underworld abode of the dead, which we also find in the Hebrew word Sheol, equivalent to Hades 
the netherworld, Niflheim. To repeat 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, at which also going, he proclaimed to those spirits in prison who had at one time been disobedient when the forbearance of Yahweh awaited in the days of Noah's preparing the vessel in which a few, that is, eight souls, had been preserved through water. Christ preached the gospel to the spirits of those who had died before and during the flood to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. And therefore, they also are now reunited with Yahweh. They have access to the Father, as Paul told us. These prisoners were not Israelites, but they were Adamic people. They were white Adamic people who nevertheless fell under the earlier promises of restoration to our race. The first of these is in Genesis 3.22. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You could be assured that when Christ spoke to those disembodied spirits of the dead, that every single one of them at that time reached out and grasped the tree of life. Surely none of them can we imagine had rejected the gospel at that time. In the assembly hall in Nazareth, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4, Christ quoted from Isaiah chapter 61, where he said, The Spirit of Yahweh God is upon me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh in the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness. The planting of Yahweh, they have to be Adamic people because he only planted the Adamic race in the garden of God, that he might be glorified. Therefore, it is evident that his words applied to both the Adamic spirits being reconciled to God and to the children of Israel in this world who were also being reconciled to God. One other aspect of this must be noted where Peter informs us that the spirits of men who died before the passion of Christ had received the gospel from him, which Paul corroborated. From this we can tell that those spirits had existed and had been conscious in death for all of that time, thousands of years, and that the Greek, the Roman, 
the Sumerian, the Akkadian, and the Germanic views of life and the continued existence of the spirit after death were indeed grounded in truth. And it's all found in the Hebrew Bible. All of those beliefs of the Aryan nations, while elaborated upon by them, were certainly from the Hebrew or from the same source as the Hebrew, the traditions of our common fathers. And they were always with our Aryan race wherever we went. However, now we can understand also that Christ smashed the gates of hell. There is now access to Yahweh for all Adamic spirits. There is no more hell. There's only a lake of fire, an allegory for a termination of existence. And that can be proven because in the Revelation, hell and death go into the lake of fire. They are done away with. Their existence is terminated. So anyone not written in the book of life that goes into the lake of fire, the result must be the same. Verse 21, which also now a representation, meaning of the referring back to the flood, a representation saves you, immersion or baptism, not a putting away of the filth of the flesh, not a baptism of the body, but a demand of a good conscience for Yahweh through the resurrection of Yahshua Christ who is walking in heaven at the right hand of Yahweh, messengers and authorities or angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. While it is true that the apostles were baptizing people in water for quite some time after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, the book of, the book of Acts is a book of transition from the old covenant to the new and from the service of rituals to the service of kinship in our reconciliation to God. That is what the new covenant is really, is really about. Rather than a service of rituals for our own sake, we are to turn to serving each other with real works for the sake of building the real temple, the body of Christ, found in our race. Therefore, Paul says in Galatians 5.13, for brethren, you have been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Here we see Peter profess that baptism or immersion is the cleansing of the conscience, not the body. And that does not require water and a ritual performed at the hands of another man. Peter realizes this and makes the admission recorded in Acts chapter 11, in verse 15, where he says, And with my beginning to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. He's talking about the people in the house of Cornelius who heard him preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit fell upon them 
even as also upon us in the beginning, meaning Acts chapter 2. Then I remembered the saying of the princes he spoke. Indeed, John immersed in water. John baptized in water. But you shall be immersed in the Holy Spirit. In the days of John the Baptist, John was sent to perform what he did as a representation of cleansing the consciences of whom those whom he baptized. This was the fulfillment of the prophecy of John the Baptist found at Malachi 3.3, where it says that he shall purify the sons of Levi, and indeed he did. John the Baptist fulfilled the necessary washing of the priests and the sacrifice, Yahshua Christ himself, which were required by the law in Leviticus so that Christ could be perfect, a perfect sacrifice unto God. Paul wrote in Hebrews 9.26, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once in the end of the world, has he suffered, has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Therefore, confirming what Peter said earlier in this epistle about the relationship of a man and a wife, and also corroborating what Peter says here about baptism, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, from verse 24, But as the assembly is subject to Christ, in that manner also wives, and everything to the husbands. Husbands, love the wives, just as Christ also loved the assembly, and had surrendered himself for it in order that he would consecrate it, cleansing it in the bath of the water in the word, that he may present it to himself in honor. The assembly, not having a blemish or wrinkle or any of such things, but that it would be holy and blameless. Immerse yourselves in the word of God, and there is no need for the rituals of men. John 15, 3, the words of Christ to the apostles, now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Baptism is in the word of the gospel. One Peter chapter four, verse one. Therefore, with Christ suffering in the flesh you also be equipped with the same mind, because he who suffers in the flesh ceases from wrongdoing, for which no longer in the desires of men, but in the will of Yahweh, he should live the remaining time in the flesh. Peter already told his readers at chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, but at last, all be like-minded, sympathetic, lovers of brethren, compassionate, humble-minded, not returning evil for evil or abuse for abuse, but on the contrary, blessing, because for this you have been called, in order that you shall inherit a blessing. Likewise, Paul told the Romans in 8.17, and if children, then heirs, heirs indeed of Yahweh and joint heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer together, that we also will be honored together. And in Romans 12, too, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
and in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, farewell, finally, brethren, farewell, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the love of God, and, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. So Peter and Paul taught all the same things, and they both taught that we should be like-minded with one another. The only way we're ever going to achieve like-mindedness with one another is if we all agree with the gospel and the words of Christ. We don't have to agree with each other. We all have to agree with our God. Verse 3. For enough of the time has passed, perpetuating the will of the heathens, having walked in licentiousness, passions, drunkenness, revelries, and lawless idolatries. While they are astonished, they blaspheme that you're not running together in the same excess profligacy. I'm sorry, some of these words are twisting my tongue. Life is not party time. Christians should be sober-minded. Upon worshiping the golden calf in the desert, it is written in Exodus chapter 32 that the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Yahweh responded by telling Moses that thy people, which thou brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Paul quotes the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says, neither become idolaters, just as some of them, as it is written, the people were seated to eat and to drink, then rose up to play. There is more to idolatry than merely the worship of other gods. Verse 5. They shall give an account of him who holds ready to judge the living and the dead. Indeed, for this also the dead, to the dead, the good message has been announced. Here we have it again, the good message, the gospel, and, and this corroborates the interpretation at the end of chapter 3 where Christ descends to preach the gospel to the spirits in prison. Indeed, for this also, to the dead, the good message has been announced, the gospel, that they may indeed be judged like men in the flesh, but live like Yahweh in the spirit. We are judged in the flesh for our sins. And even after we die, we have the opportunity to repent. As Paul says of sinners, cast them outside of the assembly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, cast them outside of the assembly so that the body may be destroyed, but the spirit would live in the day of Christ. Those men who want to cast Israelites into the lake of fire do not know the gospel. We shall all indeed give an account to our creator. However, that does not mean that any of the children of God are destined to the lake of fire. They're all written in the book of life. As the Roman Catholics and all those professional priests who seek to rule over the minds of men, 
and the lives of men insist. All the seed of Israel shall be preserved, just as it is written in in Isaiah chapter 45 and in Romans chapter 11. Paul says at 1 Timothy 5.24, the errors of some men are manifest beforehand, going ahead to the judgment, but others then follow after. In like manner also are the good works manifest, and those being otherwise are not able to be concealed. Sin cannot be hidden from the eyes of God. The spirits in prison, even those who sinned in the days of Noah, And there are not many worse sinners than that which are mentioned in Scripture. Even they received the gospel for their release from the prison, not for their destruction. However, Paul says at Romans 8, 17, if indeed we suffer together, then also we will be honored together. Paul taught in Philippians that in spite of the fact of the promises to the fathers, we should not trust in the flesh, and that we should strive to attain a better salvation. In other words, just because you have the promise, that doesn't mean that you should sit idle with it. Therefore, Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, Brethren, I myself do not reckon to have obtained but one thing, forgetting the things past and reaching out to the things ahead. In quest of the goal, I give chase for the prize of the calling of Yahweh above in Christ Yahshua. As it is written in Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and many of them that asleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise, shall shine is the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and I quote from verse 10, in accordance with the favor of Yahweh that has been given to me as a skilled architect, I have laid a foundation, whereas another builds it up, but each must look at how he builds it up For another foundation, no one is able to place besides that which is established, which is Yahshua Christ. Now, if anyone builds upon that foundation gold, silver, precious stones, timber, fodder, straw, the work of each will become evident. Indeed, the day will disclose it. Sin cannot be hidden. Because in fire it is revealed, and of what quality the work of each is, the fire will scrutinize. If the work of anyone who has built remains, he will receive a reward. If the work of anyone burns completely, he will suffer loss. You could have no good works. But he himself will be preserved because of the promises to the fathers. He himself will be preserved although consequently through fire. So there will be, figuratively speaking, hell to pay for a life of profligacy and licentiousness. However, those of us who choose to live such lives will nevertheless be preserved. 
But for those who turn to righteousness in this life, they seek after and very well may find a reward, a greater reward in the next life. That's the true message of the gospel. That's quoted verbatim right from the scripture. No Israelite goes into the lake of fire. Many Israelites will wish that they had done better in this life. Only the beasts go into the lake of fire and the false prophets and all the other liars. 1 Peter 4, 7. But the consummation of all things has approached. Therefore, be discreet and sober in prayers before all things, having zealous love for one another, because love covers a multitude of errors. Proverbs 10:12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Ephesians 4.2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, putting up with one another in love. If your brother does you wrong, does you wrong, your love for him will help you overcome that. Just like Paul did, Peter also taught that the return of Christ is imminent. Romans 13.11, seeing likewise the time, that hour we are all ready to be aroused out of sleep, for now it is nearer to our deliverance than when we had believed. And again, at 1 Corinthians 7.29, Paul said, Now I say this, brethren, the time is shortening. In Revelation 3.3, we see the words of Christ. Therefore, remember how you have received and have heard and keep and repent. Then if you should not be alert, I shall come as a thief, and you may not know what hour I shall come upon you. And again at Matthew twenty four forty two, therefore you must be alert, because you do not know in what day your prince comes. Since we know not when that time shall be, we must always act as if it were imminent, as if it were tonight. And for that reason, the apostles spoke as if it was. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without murmuring. Each, just as he has received the gift for themselves, administering that same thing as good stewards of the manifold favor of Yahweh. If one speaks as the sayings of Yahweh, if one serves as from of the power of Yahweh which provides, which Yahweh provides, in order that in all things, Yahweh is honored through Yahshua Christ, for whom is the honor and sovereignty for the eternal ages, truly. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, that I wish all men to be even as myself, but each has his own gift from Yahweh in this manner one and in that manner another. As Peter teaches here, that we must be hospitable to one another without complaint. Paul told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that all of the gifts we have are of no use unless we, we meaning the children of Israel, love one another. And we dispense those gifts which we are blessed with 
to our brethren. Verse 12, beloved, do not be astonished by the burning among you taking place for a trial for you, as if a strange thing is happening to you. But just as you partake in the sufferings of Christ, you rejoice in order that also in the revelation of his honor, exulting, you would rejoice. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7, we read, in which you must rejoice if for a short time now it is necessary, being pained by various trials, in order that the test of your faith, much more valuable than gold, which is destroyed, even being tested by fire, would be found in praise and honor and dignity at the revelation of Joshua Christ. This trial, this burning taking place among the Christians Peter was addressing was very real. It is evident, as it was discussed here at the opening of this presentation of 1 Peter, that Peter wrote, and he wrote this epistle in the time of Nero. Here are the words of Tacitus from chapter 15 of the Annals of Imperial Rome, where he says, First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. The burning taking place among Christians that Peter writes about is here described. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, sounds like the FBI today, right? Large numbers of others were condemned not so much for incendiarism as for their antisocial tendencies. They're always looking for lists of patriots. Their deaths were made farcical, dressed in wild animal skins. They were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for the spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus at which he mingled with the crowd or stood in a chariot dressed as a charioteer. Despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied for it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality, meaning Nero, rather than to the national interest. That's Tacitus, the Annals of Imperial Rome, chapter 15, part 44. So the burning taking place among Christians was indeed very literal, very literal and very real. And that's not why Christians were told that they are the light of the world, right? Verse 14. If you are reproached in the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the honor and the spirit of Yahweh rest upon you. For not any among you must suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler in the matters of others. But if as a Christian, you must not be ashamed, but you must honor Yahweh by this name, the name Christian, right? Because the time of judgment is to begin for the house of Yahweh, and it's still happening. But at first for us, what is the end 
for those who were disobedient to the good message of Yahweh, meaning those not of the house of Yahweh. Mark 13, 9, but take heed to yourselves, for they shall deliver you up to councils, and in the synagogues you shall be beaten, and you shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them. This life and all our past history is our time of judgment. 1 Timothy 4.10, For this we toil and we struggle, because we have trusted in Yahweh who lives, who is Savior of all most believing men. Which doesn't mean that he's not the Savior of Israelites who still doubt, right? Verse 18, and if the righteous man is barely saved, where shall the impious and the wrongdoer be seen? Consequently, even those suffering according to the will of Yahweh for a trustworthy creator, they shall employ their souls with doing good. As Daniel says, many shall awaken to eternal reproach. Peter is urging men to repentance, hoping to save some from that fate. Paul wrote at Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, though scarcely for the benefit of the upright will one die, for the benefit of the noble, perhaps one then dares to die. But Yahweh introduces his own love to us because we, yet being wrongdoers, Christ had died for our benefit. Still more than being deemed worthy now by his blood, will we be preserved by him from wrath. Therefore, if we, being odious, were reconciled to Yahweh through the death of his son, still more, being reconciled, will we be preserved in his life. One Peter chapter five. Therefore to the elders among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, who also am a partaker of the coming honor to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of Yahweh, which is among you, supervising, not forcibly, but voluntarily in accordance with Yahweh, nor for shameful profit, but willingly, nor as gaining dominion over those apportioned, over those whom you were appointed over, but becoming models for the flock. And upon the manifestation of the chief shepherd. You shall receive the unfading crown of honor. Bishops are not to rule over the people. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 1.24, not because we lord over your faith, rather we are colleagues of your joy, for you are established in the faith. A leader should conduct himself in an exemplary manner, leading by example, and not by compulsion. A leader should be a man who has raised a family, as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, so that he knows what it is like to have raised a family. The word of God is the only real authority. Philippians 3.13 
Brethren, I myself do not reckon to obtain but one thing, forgetting the things past and reaching out for the things ahead. In quest of a goal, I give chase to the prize of the calling of Yahweh above in Christ Yahshua. We are all brethren. When we're appointed leaders, we lead as a model. The bishops of the Catholic Church sought to rule over the people, to oppress the people. The Pope of Rome seeks to rule over people, to tax them. Peter tells them, Peter tells the true leaders of of the, the assembly of God not to rule over people and not to rule over people for shameful profit, but to do it willingly. There's no support for the church hierarchy, for the Catholic hierarchy in Scripture. None. None whatsoever. Verse 5. Likewise, youths, subject yourselves to the elders and all bind on humility towards one another because Yahweh opposes the arrogant, but he gives favor to the humble. Peter's Greek here is an almost exact quote from Proverbs 3.34 from the Septuagint, which in Breton's English says, the Lord resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. From Job chapter 40, verses 11 and 12, cast abroad the rage of thy wrath, and behold, everyone that is proud, and abase him. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Of course, vengeance is God's, and Job was saying that as a prayer to God himself. Verse 6, Therefore be humble under the mighty hand of Yahweh in order that you would be exalted in due season. Those who humble themselves are exalted. Those who exalt themselves are humbled. All of your cares, all of your cares being cast upon him, because with him is care for you. Matthew chapter 10, verses 28 through 30. And do not fear from those killing the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able also to slay soul and body in Gehenna. Are not two sparrows, sold for an asarion. And one of these does not fall upon the earth without consent of your father. But of you, even the hairs of the head are all counted. Therefore, do not fear. You are worth more than many sparrows. We must not fear what men do to us as long as we are not being sinners. Verse 8, be sober, be alert. Your opponent, the false accuser, your opponent, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking someone to consume, whom you must resist, being solid in the faith, knowing that you must be subject to the same things from the sufferings of your brotherhood, of your brethren in society. James 4, 7. 
Therefore, subject yourselves to Yahweh, but stand against the false accuser, and he shall flee from you. Ephesians chapter 6, from verse 11. Put on the full armor of Yahweh for you to be able to stand against the methods of the false accuser. Because for us, the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against realms, against authorities, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. And heavenly places is, I believe, a metaphor there, right? 1 John chapter 2. Little children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now many Antichrists have been born from which we know that it is the last hour. They came out from us, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us, but so that they would be made manifest that they are all not from of us. The Antichrist, the devil, the false accuser, Satan, these words do not describe a singular supernatural demon, but an entire race of demons, people who came out of Judea, but who were not true Judeans. Examining Romans chapter 9, where Paul compares Jacob and Esau. Examining Revelations 2.9 and 3.9, which warn of those who claim to be Judah but who are truly of the assembly of the adversary, the synagogue of Satan. And Luke chapter 11, where Christ explains that the children of Cain were to be responsible for the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Christ is talking to a race. He's talking to fathers and sons, near and remote, and only the children of Cain could be held responsible for the blood of Abel. This can only describe the Kenite, Canaanite, Edomite, Jew, and the other kindred races of ancient Canaan, not all of whom became known later as Jews. Most of them today are Muslims. These people are devils. These people are the Antichrist. These people are the false accusers. Collectively, these people are Satan. They are the adversary. Their actions throughout all of history, the fruits which they have always produced, prove that unto this very day. And such is the fruit of the Jews. To repeat verse 9 concerning these devils, whom you must resist, being solid in the faith, knowing that you must be subject to the same things from the sufferings of your brotherhood in society. We, we Christians, who understand these things, must witness against and stand against the evil in society. You must resist the devils. Yet, as long as this wicked age persists, we must suffer along with our brethren, 
those who are caught up in the ways of the world, those who have not acquired the open eyes and the full armor of God in order that they too can resist the devils. As it has often been said here previously, we suffer along with our national body. We suffer along with those ignorant and sinful men around us who make up the majority of our people, the Israelite nations. All of ancient Israel suffered together under the Egyptian, under the Assyrian, and under the Babylonian captivities. But certainly not all of them were deserving of such punishment. Yet they all suffered. And so it is today that we all suffer so long as most of us are engaged in the sin of the world. Verse 10, but Yahweh is full of all favor who calls you among the number of Christ Yahshua into his eternal honor, suffering the same for a while, you shall be restored. You shall be fixed firmly. You shall be strengthened. You shall be established. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 and 18. For the present lightness of our tribulation and exceedingly surpassing eternal abundance of honor is earned by us. We, not considering the things being seen, but the things not being seen. The things being seen are temporary, but the things not being seen are eternal. For him is the sovereignty for the ages, truly. Verse 11. Paul, from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, indeed, it is necessary for him to reign, in reference to Christ, until he should place all of the enemies under his feet on his due time. The last enemy abolished is death. Therefore, all are subjected under his feet. Now, now, this is hard to understand, but you have to follow it carefully. This is from 1 Corinthians 16, 27. Therefore, all are subjected under his feet. Now, until it may be said that it is evident that all things have been subjected, because outside of the subjecting of all things to himself, and until all things are in subjection to him, then also the Son himself will be subjected in the subjecting of all things to himself. In other words, he's suffering along with us, right? In order that Yahweh may be all things among all. He is King of kings. However, all things shall be accomplished at his pleasure because he is constrained by his own word. The children of Israel were decreed seven times of punishment. The mission of Christ was very early in that period, right? Verse 12, by Silvanus, the faithful brother, as I reckon, I have written to you in brief, exhorting and testifying for this, to be the true favor of Yahweh in which you should stand. The elect woman in Babylon and Marcus, my son, greet you. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are among the number of Christ. Anybody else? 
there's no peace for. This Sylvanus mentioned here may indeed be the Sylvanus formerly with Paul, mentioned in 2 Corinthians and in each of the epistles to the Thessalonians. He evidently wrote this epistle for Peter, which would indicate why the style is so different from the second of Peter's epistles, which Peter seems to have written himself. However, as we will see, I pray next week, Yahweh willing, we'll see that a lot of the grammar is identical. The elect woman could very well be Peter's wife. Peter was married, as it is evident in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, where it says, Then Yahshua, coming into the house of Petrus, saw his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, stricken and sick with fever. And he grasped her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served him. So the elect woman in Babylon may very well be Peter's own wife, who he's referring to. Marcus must be that very mark of the gospel bearing that same name. By many accounts, given in the writings of the earliest Christians, Mark recorded Peter's gospel as it was related to him, possibly writing it while he was in Rome sometime after Peter's death. In closing, it must be said that this first epistle of Peter is a complete confirmation of the racial covenant truths of the scripture propounded by Christian identists. It synthesizes Old Testament prophecy and New Testament fulfillment. And it also fully corroborates the ministry of the Apostle Paul once it is understood that Paul's mission was to bring the gospel to no one but these same lost sheep Israelite people as he himself explained on so many occasions, all of which modern theology artificially separated from classical history perverts for their own use. As I said here last week, the apostles were not quoting these Old Testament passages concerning the children of Israel simply because they sounded nice, simply because it supplied nice things to write. Rather, they were quoting these scriptures because the people they were writing to were the very fulfillment of them. the very nations which sprung from Abraham's loins. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, Carolyn Yeager and Rodney Martin will be here. Please listen, it should be good. They will be talking about social policy in National Socialist Germany and what a nice, wonderful place it really was. I will be here, God willing, next week on Friday night, and probably with the second epistle of Peter. Praise Yahweh. Good night.